0: In these unprecedented times, we need effective immune support. That's why I'm excited to introduce two formulas that work, CV Defense and CV Acute. There's nothing quite like them. CV Defense is a daily preventative, the only supplement that delivers the six most important ingredients to optimize your immune function, including PEA, a critical molecule for long-term immunity at the cellular level. CV Acute is a fast-acting, great-tasting syrup for direct immune activation. It eliminates invaders with a fruit flower and root of patented Chinese medicine. I take it when I feel run down to fend off respiratory infections. Both products are safe, all-natural, and backed by numerous clinical trials. For more information and to order, go to TotalImmuneHealth.com and take advantage of discounts from 30 to 50% just for listening to Intelligent Medicine. That's TotalImmuneHealth.com. Totalimmunehealth.com for the most exciting immune support products in years. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. And last week uh, we interviewed the author of a book which has an amazing title. The title is, Am I Dying? And I was jealous because I thought, what a great title, what a great segue into uh, answering a lot of questions about various medical uh, diagnoses. And uh, But this week, we're going to top that because uh, here's another title that's really a winner. I'm jealous. Lies My Doctor Told Me. Great title. Medical Myths That Can Harm Your Health by today's guest. He's Dr. Ken Berry. Uh, he's an M.D. and a family practitioner uh, down in Tennessee. Uh, and uh, Dr. Berry uh, has cared for innumerable patients, uh, but meanwhile he's been researching the medical myths and outright lies that doctors tell their patients. Uh, so in this book, As Your Doctor Been uh, Lies My Doctor Told Me, he's going to uh, set the record straight on some common misconceptions. So it's a pleasure having you on the program, uh, Doctor Barry. Thanks for joining us.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Indeed. Uh, so, uh, well, well, first of all, uh, what prompted you to to write the book?
1: Well, I've always been a bit of a contrarian and someone who's always uh, my favorite question since as early as I can remember was why, why, and I'm sure that I. Bored all of my adult relatives with that question as I was growing up and I'm sure that I annoyed a few attending physicians during my medical training With that question, but I find it even to this day to be a very important question When someone issues a blanket statement of any sort, I think the number one question we should all ask is why? And when you keep asking that question long enough and repetitively enough you ultimately get to the bottom of why that person thinks their why, and then you get to decide whether you believe in that why or not.
0: So, when you title the book "Lies," my doctor told me, are these uh, little white lies like uh, uh, "Don't worry, this won't hurt a bit"? You know, the first lie that we get told when we're little kids—we hold out <laughs> our arm, uh, you know, innocently—and then we realize that uh, it was all uh, a little bit of a white lie. Or are these lies that are you know kind of s- systematic uh, in our medical system because uh, they conceal some harsh realities?
1: Well, actually, there is a chapter called "Little White Lies." They go into the more uh, trivial and, and somewhat humorous lies that doctors, nurses, and other healthcare professionals will tell their patients. But the bulk of the book is about much more meaningful lies, mistruths myths, however you, you'd like to, whatever vernacular you'd like to use, I chose the word lie intentionally so that it would be a bit provocative and uh, would make people stop and think, both patients and doctors. And so um, most of the chapters in the, in the book are very important lies that, doctor, that doctors tell their patients. And let me be very clear, this is, book is not an attack piece on doctors. I mm-hmm. am a doctor. Yep. Uh, well, what this is an attack piece on is laziness and uh, just just an inability to continue to be a student. When a doctor stops learning and, and gets lackadaisical and complacent, that's, that's dangerous to patients. Doctors are supposed to be lifelong learners and teachers, and when they drop the ball on that, then everything else starts to crumble.
0: Well, you know, to uh, take a, a page from our, our current uh, political scene, uh, you might also term these lies uh, fake health news because uh, journalists and uh, you know the clickbait headline writers uh, sometimes are complicit in promulgating uh, outmoded viewpoints, uh, especially about uh, diet, uh, and and really have, have made it harder to have an intelligent discourse about the facts.
1: I agree one hundred percent, but the problem is. Is when you see that headline, or, you know, on USA Today or the New York Times, you also shouldn't get that headline, um, confirmed when you go see your doctor. Your doctor should be deeply and widely enough read to say, I know you saw the headline, I saw it too, but here's the actual truth of the matter. Mm-hmm. But what I found in many of my patients who would come to me from another doctor is that they'd been told this, this click, clickbaity title as truth, not only by the media, but also by their own personal doctor.
0: Well, you know, let's start uh, with diet. And you have some iconoclastic views about diet, which I personally, personally share uh, to a large extent. And let's start with uh, one that's kind of embedded uh, way into the book, which is eating red meat causes cancer. What about that? Sure.
1: Yeah. And so... Um, you know, I, my, in, during my early career as a physician, I believed this to be true. Uh, I was told this by all my professors and all my clinical instructors. I just took it to be common sense. We all know this is true. But then uh, a few years back when I actually started looking into the literature that supposedly backed this statement up, it's, it's either nonexistent or completely meaningless in terms of trying to apply that research. To an individual patient. All of that research is epidemiological in nature, based on food frequency questionnaires, Mm -hmm. which I'm sure you're well aware can, or, you know, so if I do a huge study with hundreds of thousands of patients in it, and I administer a food frequency questionnaire once back in 1985, and then in in 2017, I publish a study and say, oh, look at what I found on I mean, is your diet the same as it now as it was in 1985? Because mine certainly isn't. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, there, all of this research is just meaningless when a doctor, somebody who's actually practicing medicine with their cohort of patients, it's just meaningless.
0: Plus, there's uh, confounding variables. A correlation isn't necessarily causation. Yes. And so the average vegan may be more affluent, uh, less likely to uh, live in a polluted area, uh maybe yes. more likely to do uh yoga than a omnivorous person although uh you and I probably eat a lot of red meat and you know our health uh, uh the rest of our health portfolio is probably pretty up there.
1: Yeah, we call that the healthy patient bias or the healthy subject bias. Someone who is a vegan or vegetarian on average does not smoke, does not drink much, uh is very active and tries in every way they can to optimize their health. And the average omnivore on which most of these studies are done, they don't care about any of that stuff. They just want to, you know, eat their Big Mac with the uh, supersized fries and drink mm-hmm. a large diet coat because that'll cancel out the rest of the meal. And that's that's the average person that these studies are done on. Mm-hmm. And then so you can't even apply that with regards to someone eating a healthy ketogenic diet or a healthy carnivore diet or even someone eating a healthy vegan diet because we're all trying to be as healthy as we possibly can.
0: Right. Well, this uh, being the grilling season, uh, I got my grass-fed filet mignons, and uh, it's really worthwhile coming out to visit me because uh, I serve great food. And uh, (laughs) I put them on the grill uh, at a high temperature, uh, got a little bit of char on both sides. I was happy to see as I cut into the meat that it was uh, still, uh, you know, pinkish red, not Rare, not, uh, still mooing. Uh, but you're know, one of the misconceptions that you tackle here, uh, on page 206, grilling meat causes cancer. That, that's a, a really prevailing viewpoint, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. And again, it's based on, uh, the, the epidemiological research that was popularized by the ARIC, which is a wing of the World Health Organization. And I think all those people are well intentioned. Just like your doctor, who will also repeat that lie to you, they all mean the best for you, and they—they're trying to do a good job. But everything about the research is tainted. There is there's researcher bias, there's healthy uh, subject bias in this epidemiological research, and what you wind up with is a huge study that really you can't even draw association from, and definitely you can't draw any kind of causation from.
0: But surely there are things like uh, PAHs, uh, uh, aryl hydrocarbons, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons uh, that have actually been shown to have uh, carcinogenic potential. So uh, is there a way to offset that potential risk by, say, serving other healthier foods along with well, the, gril- the
1: grilled meal? Well, I think that you'll also find those same chemicals in toast. And mm-hmm. any, you know, the the crust of, of bread that's been browned in the oven. And so you can't really blame that on the meat. Perhaps you could blame it on the method of cooking. But then secondly, I think another uh, very sexy term we've all been throwing around lately, hormesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're all very happy to talk about the sulforaphane in in broccoli and how that has a hormetic effect. But in my opinion, for the large bulk of humanity's existence on this planet, We've eaten meat that we've stabbed with a stick and held over the fire. Mm-hmm. And and nope. I don't know if you've ever tried to do that. But it's hard to do that without getting some char. And so if anything, I would I would posit that these things have a hormetic effect in our body. Mm-hmm. And if you take some cells in vitro completely out of the body and you <clears throat> slather them in all these chemicals, then you may have some precancerous changes in those cells. Right. In a, in those a, cells
0: what's so-called so uh, in vitro model. That's you right. Know, so the that's test tube exactly model right. will show that there's a potential for them to alter the cells. But sure. in vivo, in a real-life uh, setting, it's really hard to demonstrate that that's a, a problem.
1: Yeah, it's impossible to demonstrate, actually. We, we have no meaningful research whatsoever that shows that, that any increased risk of cancer occurs in people who have a healthy uh, carnivore or meat-heavy diet. There's just no research that shows that. And so, once again, we come back to this basically being uh, eminence-based medicine. These these very respected individuals at the World Health Organization have this opinion, and it's that's really em- em- It's
0: eminence-based is. medicine. You just yeah, change yeah. change one letter, and it's eminence, that's right. right? Okay, got it. Uh, you you weigh in against uh, the medical myth that we all need to curtail our sodium consumption. But that's such a prevailing notion within medicine. I mean, you're really bucking the tide there. Doctors say, you know, skip the salt, uh, restrict your sodium to uh, less than two grams per day. Uh, What say you?
1: The American Heart Association has their own diets. They call the DASH diet. And the kind of the foundation of that diet is that you're going to eat a very, very low sodium diet. And I think they fully believe in their heart of hearts that that will decrease your risk of heart attack and heart failure. But the problem is, is that the controlled research shows the exact opposite. Even in people with um, stage two or three heart failure, their heart failure gets worse when you limit their sodium or their salt intake. And so they're definitely on if you if you do a a study with 150,000 people and you severely limit their sodium, their, their systolic blood pressure reading will be two or three points lower on average, but in the big picture, that's that's meaningless. That you know, you can look at an epidemiological landscape where oh, that prevented three heart attacks out of a hundred thousand people, for example. But on a case by case basis, when I'm talking to a patient in the room, everybody feels worse on a low sodium diet. Everybody hates a low sodium diet, and the control research that's been done on this not only in people with, with normal ejection fractions and normal heart function, but even people who have damaged hearts, they actually have better outcomes and right. they have a decrease in morbidity and mortality when they eat more salt. And it looks like humans are hardwired to, to desire just as much salt as we need, which for most, most people is three to five grams mm-hmm. a day of salt. And when you eat that much salt, your heart works very well. You feel great. You're mentally alert. And then even in in people with substantial degrees of heart failure, their ejection fractions actually do better when they eat salt to taste. And I think that's what animals do. And I think that's what humans should do as well.
0: Yeah, there seems to be a paradoxical effect of restricting sodium because it causes some of these counter-regulatory hormones uh, to kick up a notch and thus uh, constrict the blood uh, vessels and maybe uh, also keep uh, fluid within the body. Absolutely. When you, if uh, you
1: lower, if you lower the systolic blood pressure three points, but in the process of doing that, you raise a person's cortisol and insulin levels, you haven't helped that patient at all because what we're all concerned about is not lowering our blood pressure three points. We're concerned about is prolonging both our lifespan and our health span. That's what we ultimately care about. I don't want to die. Not only do I not want to die of a heart attack, I don't want to die of anything. And, in, and the research shows that when you eat salt to taste, your risk of dying from anything is actually at its lowest.
0: Yeah, and, and that's the problem with a lot of these studies, uh, Dr. Perry, is recently they came out with headlines saying uh, uh, chicken is actually just as bad for you as red meat. Well, I come from the same perspective that you do, that red meat is not all that bad for you. And what they did is they looked at what are called surrogate endpoints. And you make a good point sure. is when you're looking at something like LDL cholesterol uh, or, uh, you know, some marker that you can get in the blood test that doesn't necessarily speak to the longevity of the person who is uh, undertaking this little experiment, either eating chicken or eating red meat or being a vegan. Uh, that's what our real concern is, right?
1: Yeah. And they I, actually their study found that eating chicken raises your total cholesterol just as much as eating red meat. And to both of those things, I would say – and so what? Because uh, you, I'm sure, are well aware that there's a huge paradigm shift going on in, in medicine and lipidology research right now. And that's basically that everyone is stepping away from total cholesterol and even LDL cholesterol as a proven risk factor for increased risk of heart attack and stroke. It just, it's going to turn out that uh, probably 20 years from now, I predict that in the first or second year of medical school, Medical students will be taught the lipid hypothesis of heart disease as as a way that medicine can go awry and the way that researchers can get it wrong. And then how big pharma, basically the big corporations, can come in and make billions off of it. But you've been practicing bad medicine all along. And I think we'll see that in coming years. Med students are taught this is the way you don't do it. And so I'm not worried about total cholesterol at all in my patients. I think, if anything, it's actually a marker of of decreased risk of dementia and other things.
0: And then there's the demonization of fat, particularly saturated fat. And, and, you know, you still see uh, blanket recommendations uh, to reduce the saturated fat. Make sure that you get your fat from uh, other sources, especially polyunsaturated fat. That's the right kind of fat as opposed to the saturated fat, the bad kind.
1: Right. And that's just the echo of the lie that doctors don't need to be repeating. Yeah, they said that on Fox News or CNN last night, but that doesn't mean that, that a doctor should just say, okay, I'm just going to tell all my patients that. And that's why I chose the word lie instead of myth, is because it's, doctor, it's, it's our fiduciary duty to give our patients good advice. And that includes nutrition. And if you're telling your patients, oh, you should really cut down on the saturated fat, the patient's next question should be, why? And and let the doctor answer that question because most doctors at that point will say, well, it, it is known or everybody knows or in any time a doctor or any kind of professional says, well, everybody knows or that's the way we've always done it. That's a huge red flag that that the patient's in danger.
0: And uh, one of the cherished uh, concepts within the uh, nutrition community is that people should consume lots of whole grains. And uh, number six among your lies my doctor told me uh, is wheat isn't all it's cracked up to be, but it's thought to be, you know, the staff of life, uh, a source of fiber, uh, you know, very beneficial. Uh, we can't live without it. What's the deal?
1: Yeah, emperors and army generals discovered thousands of years ago that if you don't want your troops to starve to death, feed them wheat. It's very cheap. It's easy to get. It lasts a long time and they won't they won't die. And and basically, that's what you want from the masses. You want them to have a full belly and to not be complaining and to not be starving to death. And wheat fills the bill on all those things. But when it comes to optimal human health and optimal human nutrition, wheat falls far short of the bar. Uh, human beings for the vast majority of our existence on Earth have eaten as much fatty meat as we can get our hands on. We'll eat some green veg if we can't find the meat. But at no point in our existence, and even even other mammals, even the ruminant animals, won't eat grains unless human beings make them to uh, make them. Corn,
0: corn-fed uh, uh, yeah, cattle, exactly. for example, and hogs. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it, it's sort of an efficient way to uh, stuff an animal with a lot of mm-hmm. calories, so that that animal will uh, be more valuable when it goes to the slaughterhouse.
1: Absolutely, you can make a, a goose have fatty liver. You can make uh, cattle have fatty muscle, which is that marbling in the ribeye that you and I both love. But you can also use grains, both wheat, corn, and the other grains, to give humans fatty liver and to give humans marbled meat, which is not a good thing at all.
0: I I was a little surprised that you uh, took on another uh, cherished myth, which is the uh, fiber myth. You know, we're we're very... uh, uh, fiber obsessed in this society. You know, we want to make sure that we get uh, 60, 70, 80 grams of fiber every day because fiber is a a panacea supposedly for reducing our cholesterol and uh, keeping our colon cancer free and on and on it goes. Uh, But you actually challenge that as uh, somewhat of a misstatement.
1: Absolutely. When you look at the meaningful research, fiber really serves no purpose whatsoever in the human body. Uh, There are so many patients and doctors out there who think you need multiple servings of fiber every day of your people life.
0: People take even Metamucil even, and psyllium. Yeah, and, you to know, even be stuff. able
1: to have a bowel movement. much. And then also we believe it's going to decrease your risk of colon cancer and other things. But the research that people cite to back that up is just atrocious. Mm-hmm. It's terrible research. Mm-hmm. And then you also have to take into account that there's a, a large subcommunity of carnivore humans. And I think there's a there's a Facebook group with about twenty five or thirty thousand carnivores who eat only animal products. And they've done that for decades. And no one has colon cancer. Everyone has normal bowel movements. They have no problem with their bowels. And so then you go back and you look at the research with fresh eyes because these carnivores, they should have scurvy and they should all be constipated to death. Right. But they're not. They're they're all very active. They feel great. Their bowels move great. So then we got to go back and look at the research again and go, wait a minute, we're missing something here. And so probably if you're eating the standard American diet or what I call the stupid American diet, you may need lots of vitamin C and you may need lots of fiber to help you get rid of all the poisonous things that you're eating in your diet. But when you remove those slow poisons from your diet, you don't need as nearly as much vitamin C and you don't need any fiber whatsoever.
0: Wow. Well, uh I think certainly some of these uh, carnivores are consuming uh, low-starch uh, vegetables, maybe modest amounts of fruit. Uh, they uh, do deliver nutrients that sometimes uh, meat does not uh, contain, correct?
1: Well, no, actually, no, I don't agree with that. There's, there's actually no vitamin or mineral that you can't get from animal products if you eat nose to tail like I'm doing yeah, more and, that, and more these that's, days.
0: That's an important distinction because I think a lot of people yes. think that uh, carnivores just eat 22-ounce uh, uh, porterhouse steaks. Explain how that might be, that the nutrients lie... Uh, within different animal parts, sort of the way our ancestors ate because, uh, you know, Native Americans, for example, they ate the whole buffalo, they you know, nose to right. tail. Uh, so did, uh, you know, the, the, our, the cavemen who tackled the uh, woolly mammoths, for example.
1: So if your, if your carnivore diet consists only of uh, quarter pound patties of beef from McWendy Kings, then you may well develop some vitamin deficiencies after a few months of that. But most intelligent carnivores that I know, we eat liver two, two or three times a week. Mm -hmm. We try to, to. Supplies
0: folate, which is uh, something usually we, we look to in vegetables. Right.
1: Folate, choline, and most liver has a good supply of vitamin C. And it looks like when you're eating a very low carbohydrate diet, as a carnivore diet would be by definition, you just don't need as much vitamin C because you're, you, Mm -hmm. you don't have as much, much, uh, Unhealthy oxidation going on in your body therefore you don't need all of that antioxidant effect from the, the mega doses of vitamin C But liver is rich in choline and folate and all these are the things that you have trouble getting from a plant-based diet And then it doesn't it doesn't actually show it if you go to the USDA website and, and ask how much vitamin C is in a ribeye It'll say zero right. actually not true at all all fresh meat has a little vitamin C mm-hmm. and then organ meats are rich in vitamin C
0: mm. Interesting. That's a factoid I, I was not aware of, but you know it does argue for a, a kind of a, all it all comes down to uh, the paleo approach, sort of emulating uh, the lifestyles uh, for which our our genes were evolved to uh, to address.
1: Absolutely, our genes have been evol- evolving on this planet for millions of years. We have been Homo sapiens sapien for at least two hundred fifty thousand years on this planet. And so you can't say, oh well, we've done something for a hundred years, or even five hundred, or a thousand years. That's not even one percent of our existence on this planet. Our DNA has existed as Homo sapiens sapien for two hundred to two hundred fifty thousand years. That's a long damn time. And so then all of a sudden, when when big food starts throwing these. Franking foods at us like industrial like the seed oil
0: burger the, something like that <laughs>
1: right exactly and so if anybody thinks oh well that's probably the perfect food for human beings then you just bought the lie
0: yeah all right well <laughs> you've laid it out uh, very eloquently on the diet front uh, the book is lies my doctor told me medical myths that can harm your health uh, and when we return we divide our podcast into two parts so when we return we're going to talk a little bit about uh, other medical white lies, or more than that, uh, sometimes uh, a conspiracy of silence or uh, an effort to deliberately mislead us. That's really where this book is uh, headed. Dr. Ken Berry, our guest. I'm Dr. Ronald Hopman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast.